turned out to be one of the deadliest fires in the history of the country. The city of Oakland was absolutely aware of it. The families did not feel it was justice. They didn't feel it was accountability. They didn't feel it was punishment. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice sought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Today we have with us a very special guest, Mary Alexander. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm so excited to get into this case because it just sounds so intriguing, but I want to start with the basics. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Mary Alexander, trial lawyer in San Francisco. And what type of law do you practice? What type of cases do you usually take on? Well, I do personal injury, and that includes uh, automobile accidents, product liability. I do some class actions, uh, particularly those involving consumer rights and um, things like pharmaceutical cases. Okay. And just so our listeners know, we are going to put Mary's website and her firm information in the show notes page. So please make sure you check those out. So we're here today to talk about a case known as the ghost ship, which I'm sure brings a lot of images to our listeners' minds, mine included. And I want to be really clear about a few things. What was ghost ship and what happened? Ghost ship was the name that the people who were building it out named it. And it was a warehouse where it was not supposed to have people living in it. It wasn't permitted for living. It was, they also had parties and events there. There was no permit for that. 
but this went on for a couple of years. And it was a place that was all built out with uh, furniture and carpets and pianos and uh, curtains, all kinds of fuel for fires. And it uh, had no place um, for uh, good exits. It didn't have anything that was uh, in the way of fire suppression, fire extinguishers, no uh, water that would come down if there was a fire. And so it really was a very uh, dangerous place, but they were holding concerts and parties. So this had started as a warehouse, correct? But yes. it had been abandoned and just taken over by a random group or who had taken it over? There's a man named Almena who rented it out. And so he was the master tenant. And he set about to have people come in and he would divide it up into little living spaces. And it was very inexpensive, cheap place to live. And so young people who were artists and musicians who weren't making a lot of money, and some were students, uh, came and lived there. And it was, uh, they called it an artist collective. So what happened? On December 2nd, 2016, and this is in Oakland, California, they held an event. And it was with DJs and they put it out on the internet for people to come. At one point, there was about 100 people and a fire broke out on the bottom floor. The party was being held on the second floor and <clears throat> turned out to be one of the deadliest fires in the history of the country. The, the building, the warehouse filled with flames and smoke and 36 people couldn't get out and they died from the smoke inhalation on that second floor. Oh my gosh. Now, was it Mr. Alameda that was hosting this party or was it another group? It was another uh, group, a group of artists that got together and um, put it together and kind of promoted it on the internet but he rented it out to them. But he and his family, he lived there with two children up on the second floor. He left and was not there that night staying in a hotel. Do we know how the fire started? Well, the lawyers that worked on this case, we know how it started. It was an electrical fire and it started in the back wall of the ghost ship, the furthest place from where the electricity came into the building. And it had very bad wiring. And that long stretch of wire, what happens with electricity is that it heats up when it's not proper, proper uh, wiring. And when this party started and they had all the DJs and, oh, they also had a big blow up a screen. So there was a big load on that electrical system and one of the sockets in the wall caught on fire. So my guess is Mr. Alamina had all of these people living there unauthorized 
he was also not doing the proper work and not keeping things to code in order to handle this type of, well, any of the type of electricity that he was bringing in through these concerts. Almena knew he had an electrical problem and he didn't fix it. Uh, he talked to the owners, they wouldn't fix it. And what happened is that he at one point uh, brought in somebody who was an electrician without a contractor's license uh, who did some work, but didn't really, didn't fix it and maybe made things worse. So he was not protecting the people who lived there and importantly, the public that came in. And there was evidence, I'm guessing, that he knew of the risk and consciously ignored it. There was evidence that Almeida knew about the risk and that he um, complained to the owner and people who lived there complained. Lots of stories about how the power would go out and they'd have to go next door within the building to the automobile shop and put in uh, new fuses. And this, it was so old. They were the big, long, old fuses that were in the system. And so they knew they had a problem. So now this fire starts. There's no fire prevention system from the ceilings that I think everybody would expect to drop down and start spraying water. So we end up with the deadliest fire in the United States with 36 people being killed. How did you learn about this and how did you get involved? I learned about the fire on television and saw this terrible inferno. You know, it was at night and it was just a terrible horrible scene. And um, in the next uh, day or two, a lawyer called me that wanted to refer me one of the people. And then it, um, other families um, came forward for a long time. Some of the families um, sat in Oakland waiting to find out whether their children were on the list ones that had died of the 36 that couldn't get out. Oh my. And did it come out as to why the victims were unable to leave? Were their deaths preventable in leaving? Yes, there was a really rickety stairway that went up to the second floor and it made like two turns and didn't come down to an exit. Um, it's obvious that people were not able to find their way out in the dark and the smoke and the, and the chaos. There weren't lighted exit signs to show on the way. There wasn't an emergency lighting. And so it meant that um, people who were just visiting there for the night couldn't find their way out. Was the city aware of this? The city of Oakland was absolutely aware of it. By the way, the fire department was just on the next street over, a block over, maybe not even a full city block away. They could see this building. They could see the ghost ship from the front door of the fire department building. The firemen would come over and go to Wendy's across the street from the ghost ship. We have evidence of firemen who um, 
one went to a party there up on the second floor and then was there for three hours. And he actually testified in the criminal trial and he said, I didn't notice any any problems with the fire protection system. <laughs> so they knew it was there. Um, we have actually hundreds of contacts uh, over um, a two to three year period with not only the fire department, but police, the city police, who would get calls about noise and, uh, and also debris out on the sidewalk. And they turned a blind eye and did nothing to shut the place down. Did the city ever even provide a notice or inspect the building? The city never inspected the building. The building was not even on their list. That it, that it existed, wasn't even on their list to inspect. And so uh, it became very important that there were these contacts with by the police and the firemen that uh, it should have been on their list. More importantly, um, that it was not long before the fire, the lieutenant from the uh, fire department that was just a block away came over and um, he actually went inside. He said that he had heard um, from a fireman that had been there recently that they had interesting wood pieces, carvings, and he was interested in wood. And so he came and looked around and, and questioned Almena. And uh, he said, Almena said, well, it's an artist collective. And, and so, but he sent a report uh, a piece of paper and asking, what is this artist collective? Is this something that um, should be on our list? Anyway, reporting it, nothing was done. And, and they I continued to do the, continue to live there and continue to hold events. Also significantly, there were other, other businesses within that building. There was a Boost Mobile, there was a shoe store, um, other shops, and this auto uh, shop where uh, that's where the electrical equipment was. And it, when you have multiple businesses like that, by law, by the California Public Utility Commission and the rules that uh, Pacific Gas and Electric have, each of those businesses are supposed to be individually energized. Electricity have a separate line, a separate account. And why is that? Just because of this, that you, you shouldn't have all these businesses running on one line with one meter. And that's what had happened. So PG&E was also uh, one of our defendants, the electrical company. And we had to prove that they had noticed and that they had a duty to, when they saw that uh, something was dangerous inside, that they had a duty to fix it, shut it down, make it safe, shut down the electricity until the owners made it safe. And they didn't do that. They also turned a blind eye. Uh, you bring up an incredible point of PG&E as a defendant. And I want to be clear to our listeners 
Many times attorneys aren't able to get involved in these cases until after the criminal trial, when a civil trial is available. Mary was actually involved in this case and was representing her clients throughout the criminal trial as well. And because we like to draw the distinctions on this podcast and we like to focus on both and and how the civil trial system helps victims in the end, um, because again, Mary's so rare in walking her clients through a criminal trial, I want to talk about the criminal trial first. What happened and what was that process? The district attorney in Alameda County, where the city of Oakland is, the district attorney filed a criminal case against Almena and also Harris that was kind of, they called him his lieutenant. But Harris helped build it out. He signed a lot of the leases with the people who lived there. And so both of them were tried together and they were tried for 36 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Uh, and yes, I did go to the uh, the trial. I sat there with my clients. There were many of the parents that uh, watched it. And um, it, it, they had witnesses, um, policemen with showing their body cams where they were knocking on the door and uh, when there was noise at night and could see that people were in there. I could hear the party going on and it was really... Um, extraordinary. Um, But it ended with a mistrial as to Almena. It was, jury was 10 to 2 to convict, but there were two holding out. And Harris was found not guilty. And so he was out of the case. Very disturbing and upsetting for the families having endured that trial and heard all the evidence and, and how bad the conditions were and how Almena and Harris uh, knew all about the dangers and yet continued to break the law and and danger the public that came in. So for the families, the civil case was a place that uh, we thought after that trial that we might be able to get them justice. Were the owners not charged at all? The DA never charged the owners, which we, the attorneys and the families, thought was wrong. But because the building owner, uh, you cannot, as we use the word in the law, it's a, you cannot delegate your responsibility to someone else if you're a building owner. You own it. And so you own the liability for it. And it's, it's, it's called a non-delegable duty. And so I think the case was kind of slam dunk with, in my view, for the owners. But uh, the owners claimed they didn't know and they weren't there. It was the, it was the, it was Almena that um, was, was involved uh, on the ground which is true, but you have an obligation and duty to know what's going on in your own building. Um, for Mr. Almeno, were the jurors polled at the end? Or did they give a, were they surveyed? Did they give reasons why the two holdouts held out? Uh, no, we never really heard um, why 
uh, I think that some of it was that there was the the idea that he was not the one that was uh, the building owner. He wasn't the one that had the, the final duty to make the electricity safe and so forth. Okay. So his case ends in a mistrial. Did the DA refile charges? Well, what the DA did was just continue and re to retry the case. And he remained in jail. Um, and um, there was a settlement. They reached a plea bargain. Uh, and it was for like, I don't know what, I can't remember exactly. It was like nine years. If you did the math, it was three months for each death. And the families were very upset about it. And in California, the law is that the judge has to consult with the victims and, uh, and the DA has to consult with the victims. And that's what, um, what they did. And the judge actually, very unusual, overturned it and denied the plea bargain. So they were off and running and get for trial again. So how did this end? Things um, continued until uh, COVID hit and trials set, shut down and the courts weren't able to hold jury trials. Uh, also, COVID was breaking out in the jails and they released people who were considered nonviolent and they released Almena to home on uh, you know, an ankle bracelet. Uh, and that was very upsetting to the families because he was not in jail and he was with his family, his children. Um, and then the, they decided that they were not really going to be able to, uh, the DA decided they weren't going to be able to proceed. Another plea bargain was uh, entered into similar to the other one. And this time the judge granted it, a different judge. And it was essentially still three months for each death? Yes. And so he was not going to be, and he was not going to be having uh, any more time in jail. And it meant that um, he just would uh, continue a little bit longer in home confinement. So Mr. Almena is now at home and not in prison. And is he still even on confinement? You know, I'm not sure if he was he's still confined or not. Um, it wasn't going to be much longer. He was going to be on probation uh, for like an, uh, another period of times. But the families did not feel it was justice. They didn't feel it was accountability. They didn't feel it was punishment. And uh, for what he did and what, he, what resulted in 36 deaths. And I think a lot of times victims going through the criminal justice system could really benefit from having an attorney with them because of the support they receive from the district attorneys. District attorneys are great. They're doing very hard work every day. They are simply not equipped to provide 
services to each victim in the way that that attorney civil attorneys sometimes are. How did your clients feel about the support they received throughout the criminal justice process from the DA's office, from the police officers, from the court system? Well, what you say is very true in general. I do feel like uh, the DA in this case, and, and particularly the, the victim advocates that they had assigned to the clients, um, I think that they did a good job of keeping people informed and they had a room for them to go for a break and protect them from the press who were there all the time outside and inside the courthouse. Um, I think that they did disagree with the the decisions that were being made. Um, But I think, and by that, I mean decision to enter into plea bargains and things like that. But I think in this case, um, they treated uh, the families with uh, respect and letting them know what's going on and as best they could. And there's a lot of families, right? <laughs> a lot of people that they had to, to, uh, to work with and keep informed. Now, in a statement after the plea deal was approved, you said, I don't expect Almena will be spending any more time behind bars, and that's very upsetting to the families. It's not punishment. It's not accountability. What do you think accountability would have looked like? Accountability for Almena would have been many, many more jail years, not years at home. And that was um, that was not to be, and just to let him out early, and for him to be able to um, be home with his family when and his children when my clients' children will never come home, and that was just so upsetting. So what they believed would have been justice is. Um, many more years, whether that was uh, 10, 15, 20, but the amount of time that he did end up with in jail, which was um, around three and a half years, I think, um, just wasn't enough. And was any restitution ordered in the criminal trial? Yes, there was restitution. The uh, families, presented to the court, by the way, uh, for sentencing, they gave witness impact statements, which was heart-wrenching. They hear the stories uh, from the mothers and the fathers and about their loss. And so there was um, also a time for them to asked for restitution and it was, and those, those were granted. The problem is that Almena doesn't have any money. And so that restitution really is unlikely. And I think that's, that's always the problem we see with restitution is you are asking for it from someone who's going to prison and makes 25 cents on the dollar usually. Which leads me to the civil trial. Can you talk us through the process on that? And and just for our listeners' sake, we mentioned a previous defendant. 
I imagine there were a whole slew of other defendants as well. So if you can talk us a little bit through the civil justice system and explain who else you were able to seek liability from and how you decided on them and why you were able to, whereas the criminal trial didn't work. So we filed suit against the owners of the building, the Ings, and the city of Oakland and Pacific Gas and Electric Company. All of these three defendants contributed to this fire. The cause of the fire failed to prevent it and failed to protect the public. So with the Ings, as the owners, they had an ultimate responsibility to make their building safe. They should have had the fire protection. They should have had, that is, the the signs for exits. They should have had good exits. They should have had um, fire sprinklers and all the things that we expect in a building where you're having events and people are gathering. They didn't have. And then with the city, they uh, failed to, even they knew about the place, to uh, meet their mandatory obligation to shut the place down as an illegal place to live and an illegal place to have events. Uh, And then the uh, lack of protection by Pacific Gas and Electric Company that they should have known and did know that there were multiple businesses there and that they were all on a one meter uh, and there was this little secondary meter. And um, so that's, that's what we alleged. And what was the result? Or walk us well, through the process altogether. Well, it was a very long process and the city filed the city filed seven different motions to get out of the case. Demers, motions to strike, uh, other motions. One went all the way up to the state of California and all of them were denied. What were their motions based on? There are government immunities and they said, we're immune. Uh, and the it meant that with a government entity that if they do inspections and they do it badly, doesn't matter, you're immune. And in this case, um, just because they didn't have it on the their list, um, some of the immunities applied. What we were left with is their mandatory duties under the law in California, they had a, a duty to make sure that all of the uh, groups that were, ha- they're called uh, illegal cabarets. If there's a cabaret where you're putting on music and you're selling alcohol without a license, then they should be shut down. And the city knew that and they didn't shut it down. And they also um, had other mandatory duties and we were able to prove those and we were able to hold the city in and they ultimately settled with us. And now sovereign immunity, you had to be expecting sovereign immunity claims because they come up all the time. And just so listeners know, they are really hard to overcome. 
Um, so I imagine that had to be quite a battle. And you then, know what? People told me it can't be done. And I said, we have to try. And it was a huge battle. And just to talk a little bit about sovereign immunity, sovereign word comes from uh, the king. The king was the sovereign and, and our judicial system comes down from England. And in, in those days, you couldn't sue the king. But then the governments that were established said, well, I, we'll allow you to sue us for certain things. Um, but they still maintained other immunities as sovereign. And so they're very difficult to get around. And they're always hard. In any case, in a dangerous road that, that caused an accident, it's really hard um, to win against uh, a public entity. And so we had all of those kinds of uh, things that we had to get over. And it was, um, it, it was very difficult. And I just want to make sure that uh, I say that this was really a team effort with a lot of lawyers, very good lawyers that, uh, that were involved in my, uh, I was a liaison counsel, but we had an executive committee of uh, Tom Brandy and, and Bob Bale and Chris Dolan, uh, all in the San Francisco area. And it really took um, a lot of effort from these very good, bright lawyers to overcome the battles that we had, particularly with um, the city. And so as soon as the case comes back down from the Supreme Court against the city, do they immediately settle or does it get dragged out more? No, it was still dragged out, but we um, eventually we did um, we did have a, a trial date that looked like it was um, going to go forward and uh, and they and they settled. And did the other two defendants settle as well? At the, about the same time, uh, PG&E also settled with us. And uh, we still had um, some haggling with the, the Ings. They didn't have enough insurance. And uh, so we are in an agreement with them. They went into what's called voluntary bankruptcy. And through the bankruptcy, we were going to be selling their properties and uh, then the proceeds from selling uh, some of their properties that they have will go to the families. But in the end, did your clients feel that justice was finally done and that there was some measure of accountability? They did feel that there was <clears throat> some justice accountability for these three defendants. Of course, no amount of money really takes away um, the pain, how raw this was for them. But they were glad that in the civil justice system, as opposed to what they were experiencing in the criminal, uh, that they did receive some justice. And this case is an example of where the civil justice system can help victims of crime, where the, they so often the criminal system can fail and, 
and the civil system can make a difference for them. Okay. So Mary, I want to talk about the victims in this case. These were a lot <clears throat> of young people. These were a lot of very young people who were attending a concert. You mentioned children lived there. Can we talk about the victims and the victim families? The people who were there that died were all young, young adults. And well, there was one that was 17, as young as 17. Um, for these parents, it's just uh, so difficult to lose a child, bury a child. It's just not the way things are supposed to be. And here, in addition to that, it was such a horrible way for them to die. And so these parents have this image of this inferno and all the black smoke. So, Mary, at the end of the day, we've said a few times that this fire was absolutely preventable. And these were 36 lives lost. What changes do you think need to be made and would you like to see as a result of this case? What I would like to see come as a result of this case is for the city of Oakland, other cities to have better ways of identifying buildings like this. And there are many of them because rents are so high and People who are young and uh, struggling and artists and musicians can't afford those rents. And so they're uh, forced into places like this. And so we need to have uh, throughout the country, the municipalities, the counties and the states looking for these places. And by the way, they need to help these young people. And and in some way that they don't have to live in these kind of uh, conditions. I'd also like to see that the building owners be held more responsible for the uh, conditions and making it safe, making sure that the, uh, that the inspections are done and that they're held accountable, that you can't just have uh, warehouses or rundown buildings without uh, the proper fire protections. You know, I had another case just four months after this one, an apartment building burned down in the city of Oakland. Uh, and there, the fire department had just been in the Friday before and red tagged it and it burned on Monday morning. So, um, and there, there were four people killed. So it's, it's, it's warehouses, it's apartment buildings that aren't safe. And what I'd like to see throughout the country is a change in the way that buildings are inspected and the way that they are handled after they're found to be uh, dangerous and that uh, the public is protected. The civil justice system in this case was able to hold the defendants accountable and to give some justice to the families. And I think it's important that uh, that continues and that the civil justice system is used by victims and uh, their lawyers to make change, 
to make things safe for the public and to root out the problems in the system that allows this to happen. And so that we can make sure that the public is kept safe and that these kinds of terrible, horrific fires don't happen. Wonderful. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your work that you do for victims of crime. Um, to our listeners, again, Mary's law firm page will be in the show notes. So please check those out. And thank you for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.